0: Welcome, everyone, to Understanding the Human Condition. I'm your host, Dr. James Flowers, joined by my beautiful co-host, Robin Aww, French.
1: Thank you. Hi, Dr. Flowers. How
0: are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm super, super excited to have Arden O'Connor oh, from yeah. Boston yes. with us today. Hey, hey Arden.
1: Hey, Arden. Hi.
2: Thanks for having me. You are so welcome.
0: Thanks for being here. Today's topic is increasing the odds for long-term clinical stability, which I know you know a lot. It's a topic that's very important to you, Mm -hmm. Arden. You're joining us via Zoom as we discuss and support uh, aftercare treatment for you or a loved one.
1: Thank you for joining us, Arden. And um, we know that this topic is really personal to you, and so we were wondering if you could tell us about your experience and why this topic needs more attention.
2: Sure. So thank you, first of all, for having me here and and letting me talk about something that really was foundational in terms of me starting O'Connor Professional Group. So as as many people know, I have had a younger brother named Chris um, who struggled with addiction for a very long time. And I'm sure as you see it, Flowers Institute and others see in their environments that they work in. My brother was the typical story of somebody who cycled in and out of the system. He would, you know, get himself into what AA calls the jackpot, wind yep. up in a detox, go to a facility. Our family would take a breath of fresh air and and a, a breath of relief, and then um, my youngest brother Chris would wind up coming out of the facility looking like things were going to go well and things would fall apart. And I Mm. think a lot of that had to do with his age, with our lack of understanding as a family as to what could be supportive to him and what what wasn't as supportive, but what was more protecting behavior or what people call enabling behavior. Um, I think he was an impulsive young man. And so figuring out what a life and recovery looks like at 26, when it was much easier to just say, Hey, I'm going to go hang out with my friends who are at a bar and I'll have club soda. And then, you know, before yep. we know it, we're back to the races again. So our family spent about half a million dollars out of pocket on his care. Mm-hmm. He cycled in and out of about 15 different residential treatment stays. Um, and I kept saying to my parents, You know, I was studying healthcare at business school and I said, I've never seen an area of healthcare where there's less transparency around outcomes, mm-hmm. um, less of a focus on what we can do over the long term and more guessing on behalf of family members as to what's going to make a difference and more dependence on parents or spouses to be almost like probation officers. Did right. you go to AA? Did you do this? Did you do that? And so that's really what sparked my interest. Cause I felt like my parents were in the worst position to try and monitor my brother's uh, behaviors. And yet he still needed someone who was both going to hold him accountable and cheer him on.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Arden, you and I share that exact Literally, almost exact same story. My oldest sister uh, is your brother, was your brother. Um, She was in and out of drug treatment. My family spent probably about the same amount of money that your family has. And I was growing up, she was nine years older than me. And so I would watch her in and out of treatment and the frustration mm-hmm. that my mom and dad had, the depression that my mom had related to it. And she would get out and everybody was, you know, in the pink cloud and happy and mm-hmm. doing really well. And then she'd relapse. And it was just over and over through 18 different treatment centers from the time I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then when I was a senior in college, unfortunately, she had just gotten out of treatment. She went to probably the same treatment centers your brother did. And uh, she was sober and said, I wanna move to Portland, Oregon. And my grandparents Mm -hmm. bought her a condo in Portland. And she was there for a month and fell off her eight story balcony and died. And we, yeah, we don't know how she fell or what happened, but she was having a party and there was lots of cocaine involved. And uh, so, and she had cocaine in her system. And so she had relapsed and we're not sure what happened, but you know, even back then well this was from the time I was 10 until uh undergraduate senior in college undergraduate school and we didn't my parents didn't really know about effective navigation of the treatment system they didn't know where to go mm-hmm. they didn't know who to talk to they didn't have people like you to visit yeah, with it's a huge thing. and it was so frustrating to my family and then of course devastating when she died But effective navigation of treatment and aftercare are so essential. And I never saw my sister have any type of aftercare program. She was at Betty Mm -hmm. Ford, CR Tucson, all the best, wonderful programs back in the 70s and 80s. And and yet there just wasn't a lot of follow through. Mm -hmm. Um, But families struggle with that pre and post treatment and helping their loved ones. Can you speak to us a little bit and tell us uh, and our audience about the importance of that process?
2: Of course. So, you know what we learned as a, as a family during this process is, one, we got tired of telling the story over and over again. Not only did my brother get tired of repeating symptoms in his history, but my parents, you know, by the end of his treatment stay, we have a lovely woman who works for us named Diana Clark. And my brother was at a facility here in the Northeast. And I remember I attended her workshop and I said to my parents, like, we should all go. It's a family workshop. And my father rolled his eyes and said, like, another family <laughs> like mine did <laughs> what am i gonna learn that i haven't learned today um and i think a lot of that was because we were just guessing as things went yeah. along and so you know on the on the pre-treatment side which you bring up which i think is you know a big reason we were started i just you know on a financial level i said to my parents i'd never seen you know an investment that's 30 40 fifty thousand up to a hundred thousand these days in treatment um, where parents are taking the advice of like a friend of a friend yes. who mm-hmm. liked a center or somebody Googled mm-hmm. and addiction right. rehab popped up and yeah. the pictures looked pretty good. So we're going to go that way. And That's that, my soapbox. That
1: yep. yeah. It's like throwing it, it, a dart. You might as yeah. well just throw a dart on a map. and
2: Exactly. Yeah. And I said to my parents, if you looked at the corollary, I understand college has a different implication for mm-hmm. somebody's trajectory, but there's a whole industry around ed mm-hmm. consultants and Books, and now we do have the treatment consultants, but at the time that my brother was going through it, that was it wasn't a fully developed industry for right. sure. And so, I you know I kept saying to my parents, there has to be a way to have better recommendations that are vetted um, and that give us some sense of you know comparing apples to apples. This center costs X, this center costs Y, and here's why. And and really, you know, one passion that we have at OPG is helping parents to think through in the beginning. What's the investment, not for the next 30 or 60 days, but for the lifetime of this person? You know, Absolutely. some families that we work with are blessed enough where money is not even a consideration. Others are financially certainly stable and they're doing well, but they're going to have more limits. That was the case in my family system around how much they can spend. Yeah. And it's important, in my opinion, in that second scenario to think through, well, how much do you pay in the first center and how does that um determine where you're going to go after that, both on the center side, but also on therapy and psychiatry. If, if we know anything from COVID, it's much, it's harder now these days to get immediate appointments at in-network therapists. So right. I think families really have to be thinking about aftercare on the broad sense about what, what types of professionals are going to be needed and what's the budget. Um, So I I got really passionate about that, not even to, you know, and I won't do a a diatribe because we'll be here for four (laughs) hours on um, some of the challenges with Internet marketing as it relates to treatment centers. It seems like that's starting to, to change both in the way the algorithm has been impacted, but that... At the time uh, my brother was going into treatment that was an issue too you know it it was impossible to figure out and i even to this day say to families you're going to see the term dual diagnosis well that means very different things Mm -hmm. yeah it it doesn't Mm -hmm. it it isn't necessarily um going to be a suggestion that your son who has bipolar disorder unmedicated with addiction issues is going to be at a facility where he can be stabilized just because the term dual diagnosis is mentioned. So
0: dual I think diagnosis oh. and trauma informed.
2: <laughs> uh, another one of my favorites, yeah, another yeah. one of my favorites. <laughs> so I think, you know, families, both our clients and then people who just call us for advice, you know, who just, I, yeah. I joke all the time O'Connor professional group. My last name is O'Connor. I'm Irish Catholic as, by descent, and we could stay in business just serving the family and friend group of the O'Connors yeah. for years. Um, so we get a lot of calls, and a, and a lot of what we're trying to do is helping people, helping people figure out how to triage. How to, you yeah. know if we're not the right solution? Where can they get unbiased information? Where can they get um, a facility? And how do we set expectations appropriately with families so they're not also putting the burden on a facility to say you've got to fix my son, my spouse, my whomever, um, because that also isn't realistic. And I think when we see families investing the majority in their capital in one solution, the expectations go through the roof as to what they're hoping for.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what you're talking about, about multiple treatment centers and uh, pre-care, aftercare, pre-placement, all of that, I think that, you know, one of the reasons I started J. Flowers Health Institute and the comprehensive diagnostic program is truly because uh, I was laughing a minute ago when you're like, we place people in treatment based on, oh, this is what a beautiful center. This is what a beautiful town that is. Mm-hmm. My son's always wanted to go to mm-hmm. San Juan Capistrano to yeah. treat, you know, whatever. And <laughs> so let's send him there and spend a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars and they get there and it's not what they expected. And, the, and they don't know the patient with whom they're working that's sitting in front of them. It takes a while to get to know. And so by doing these comprehensive diagnostic evaluations upfront, you, and presenting a clear and concise, what I call living behavioral MRI that produces a set of diagnoses. And you can walk in with the help of O'Connor, and o- or OPG, O'Connor Professional Group, and, and then someone like us placing them together mm-hmm. in a treatment program. I just see the relapse rate going through the floor instead of staying up at 70% or higher.
1: Yep. And yep. we've got the alumni program too. Right. So mm-hmm. when they leave our care, we wrap our arms around them. And follow up with them after two weeks, after a month, and then every other month after that. And I thought it would bother them with these telephone calls, but they love it. They love that we still care. They love that we still keep in touch. And and there's even been some instances where they... um, had their card lying around and there was a family member or one was a property manager mm-hmm. that actually they had some questions or they had some concerns about that particular individual where they actually followed up with us as well to let us yeah. know. So important. That, yeah, it really yeah. is.
0: Yeah. You know, Arden, what sets you guys apart? You and I both know in, in the treatment world and the consulting world, we're all over the place, right? There's just thousands of us everywhere in the country. And uh, you have such an amazing reputation mm-hmm. and you have such an amazing practice. And we look up to you guys and love working with you, but let our audience know what sets you guys apart in this world, in this industry.
2: It's very kind of you to say, and I, I like to think we live up to that aspiration on certain days, not yeah. every day, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, I would say a few things. I think for, for us, one of the things that was important to me when I went into the, I kind of, I thought about for a hot minute, the idea of opening a treatment center on the East Coast. And then I remembered, I used to run a home for foster care boy, boys, oh boy. and I remember the 24 seven urgent nature of that and said, I'd really like to sleep. more than five hours Um, a night again. So I I ultimately didn't do that and wound up with this more unique practice that doesn't have a home base, so to speak, in terms of a facility. I think one of the things that I noticed when I was doing some research into into practices like mine is that a lot of them were fragmented. People were either geographically restricted, so they would do case management in a certain city um, or they would do interventions and they could do phone case management, but they couldn't necessarily do in-person case management they would do, some people did placements, but they didn't do interventions. And we deliberately tried to create a one-stop shop to get to that fundamental issue of a family wants to come one place, tell their story, and not have to repeat it. And so we've had many clients in our practice for long periods of time who are very active in our case management services. We get them into some type of residential program. They do well. They may even stop services for a period of time, and then they go back in. And so I think that the the capacity to be able to take families, deal with families separately from the individuals, offer varying levels of support, whether it's a few hours a week or full live-in support. And an array of services, I think, is one piece that sets us apart. And the second part, and I know this is a little cliched because everybody would hopefully say this, but I feel like we've done a very good job in the last 10 years of building a team and a culture. You know, we've It learned the hard way, and we have not retained everybody who's joined our company, similar to any startup. We've had our own bumps in the road in terms of determining, you know, who's going to be a good fit. And so those folks who have sort of a passion for... Um, I almost say it's a weird fascination with crisis. You know, people who we had one employee who was in an EMT in an earlier life, and I knew he was going to fit in well, yeah. because, and he did, oh, yeah. because he had that kind of background and understood the importance of jumping right in. So yeah. I think, you know, we have a very clinically informed team. We have a lot more um, full-time licensed clinicians than we did in the start of our um, practice, even though we're not offering therapy. Um, and we have a really broad array from different ethnicities, different training types different backgrounds um, folks from the lgbtq plus communities we really are trying to be much more savvy about matching according to our client needs rather than just hiring you know the same version of the same person over and over again so i think that the ability to grow and have a team that's collaborative. And we have our days where we're, we're oh. certainly oh. if you took um, a poll, people are crunchy, <laughs> but absolutely. I would
1: say COVID <laughs> okay, so was
2: good to us in many ways. And in a weird way, we were able to kind of keep a team culture going that I, yeah. I, I'm really proud of that. So yeah,
0: that's Aww. amazing. And I think that putting together a team also like your EMT, that some of us in this field know how to manage crisis and work in crisis Mm -hmm. with boundaries and in good health. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I like to say we thrive on stress or we thrive on crises, Mm -hmm. but we do it in a professional way so that we also do our own self-care. How do you do your own self-care? What do you do to take care of yourself?
2: You know, I've always been an aggressive self-care person. Um, So I I love going to spas. I absolutely like my Canyon Ranch here in the Berkshires or the one in Arizona are my (laughs) favorites. We have a company membership, which is a discounted rate because we've used it for company like one day retreat type things. I'm a big fan of that i you know i I abide by the sort of daily rules that i think most people do who take care of themselves i try to exercise you know if not every day most days of the week i try to eat i'm moving towards a plant-based diet i try to get enough sleep meditation i'm on and off with i'm really trying to do even just guided for a few minutes a day um but because i found it and this is the truth it sounds again very cliched but i think for me when i'm kind to myself i'm kinder to my team i have more patience to deal with you know that 15th phone call that comes yeah. in mm-hmm. two, it's never I, i'm sure you feel this we never yep. have a steady stream no. of, of client referrals it's, no. either,
0: it's friday it's at 4:58. Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly yeah so I, I i think the only way that i know for me to be able to handle clients like that and even handle staff when they're stressed about the clients Um, is if I'm taking care of myself first. I also have three dogs who have stayed mercifully pretty quiet during this podcast. But spending time with them has been really helpful. I love it.
0: I I was completely with you going, yes, yes, yes. I agree with all of that Uh until you got to the (laughs) plant-based diet. And I was like, no, (laughs) no.
2: (laughs) Now that's been a real adjustment. It is. I have a concierge physician that I just switched to who's lovely, who's a cardiologist at MGH. She's brilliant, but she started talking to me about it. And I kept (laughs) looking over my shoulder like, is there someone else here that you're selling? (laughs) I have a card-carrying member of Smith & Walensky. Right. But I'm high cholesterol, it turns out. And and there's all these things. So I've been... Really trying to commit and reading, you know, plant-based diet books and all this. I'm not totally plant-based. I I do Mm -hmm. in meat, but I'm trying to do as much vegetarian as possible. Right.
0: Very cool.
1: Arden, can you discuss the unique issues and challenges that wealthy families and firms often face when dealing with addiction?
2: Sure. You know, I think one of the things I notice, and we hear this phrase all the time in in self-help meetings and AA and Mm. Al-Anon is hitting rock bottom. And I think the simple answer is wealthy families, there is no rock bottom. That's right. um, Mm. Unless the parents create one. And I'm not suggesting, you know, families, I think their first fear when they call us is we're going to say, cut them off, nothing. We don't ever recommend that. um, Or I should say very rarely, because in most instances especially if there is a mental health issue that's active it's a pretty dangerous proposition that said i think there's a big um gray area that most families are not always ready to explore between status quo and allowing this person to live you know the classic scenario for us is they have an upper east side apartment they've lived on their own they don't need to work the family sees them at gatherings they look either a little more erratic. So maybe there's an eating disorder, maybe they're drinking a little too much, but nobody really knows what the diagnosis is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and in those cases, a lot of times, you know, the parents are sort of like, well, we don't, we're under no financial imperative to change the scenario. And we know my daughter, my son, my whoever is going to be angry if we suggest doing something different. So I think that's one challenge. Um, I think the the issue of finding care, you know, on the one hand, you can afford the best care in the world if you have mm-hmm. resources and you're and you're willing to spend them. Mm-hmm. Um, the other challenge is you often can be suggested to do things that don't make sense. We, you know, we're we are just starting to work with a celebrity client who's got a provider out of state, um, just really prescribing inappropriately. Mm-hmm. And they're very high profile, so mm-hmm. very difficult scenario to right. navigate. Um mm-hmm. So I think there are those, you know, and we see that with families that aren't necessarily celebrities, but they have a big name in their town. They're on the building of the hospital. So you get people who get intimidated or or tell them what they want to hear and say, you should see me, you know, they're seeing the same provider for three times a week for 10 years and the progress isn't what the family's hoping for. So Mm -hmm. I think those are some of the issues that we see. The last thing I'll say is a lot of high net worth families we work with are part of family businesses and whenever you have, A young person reporting into a family member the chances that they're going to be held to objective standards are slim Mm -hmm. and um or Mm -hmm. at least in most family businesses are and that is problematic because you have other family members Mm -hmm. who are working really hard to uphold the family's legacy and to help the business to become profitable and then somebody in the business who really doesn't belong there clinically and um and the family is struggling with issues that are Not on top of the clinical issues and all the complicated dynamics that every family deals with, now you've got an asset on top of it, which makes it more challenging.
0: Absolutely. And the other thing I can imagine that's that that continues to be challenging for you and for me because of the families that you and I both work with, is the stress that you personally have in making sure that you are doing everything to perfection because these families demand perfection, right? right? And it's trying to meet the goal of the family. It's trying to meet the goal of the patient and not always agreeing with the family or agreeing with the patient and navigating that family office or that family system uh, and just trying to be, how do you navigate uh, okay. working in a family business or a wealthy family and, and trying to be as perfect as possible and making sure that you manage the stress of placing them in the right program. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I have a big question. Now, did you call my company and talk to some, <laughs> some of my team members? Because <laughs> I'm smiling. No, and he's just telling Noah attention. about the flood. That's what he's yeah, right. doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, have a, I have been, I am a very... I always say, look, we can't control the outcomes. As much as families put that on us, we 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 that's not possible and we have to be candid about that. We can control within reason somebody's experience with our firm. So yes. we we can be proactive. So I have very high standards and mm-hmm. sometimes my team thinks I'm ridiculous with what mm-hmm. I expect in terms Likewise. of communication. So I can appreciate this question. <laughs> that's you know, why I, I was I
0: laughing. Called. I'm like, I'm really talking about myself yeah, here. He yeah, always says, over-communicate, <laughs> over-communicate, <laughs> yeah. over-communicate.
2: Over-commu- I always say, if they are asking you a question, we've lost the game. If you yeah. are proactive, right. let them say, yeah. okay, enough. We've, I've had enough. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Stop no more updates. Me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, one one piece I can say, so we, we by no means have it perfect. Right. I think I'm not a huge Salesforce administrator type, but I think the more this can be automated, the better I w- I've come around to this and we're investing in that because I think to expect And I don't mean it in any disrespectful way, but our folks on our team are humans and they've got a lot of things they're balancing. And so to expect them to remember every little thing and every little nuance is challenging. So the more automated, the better. We hired, and I'm, I'm reluctant to say it here because I feel like everyone's got a poacher. Uh, but ah. we hired an excellent uh, intake yeah. director, and she has a great colleague who works with her. Uh, for me, as a small company, it seemed I'm like sorry, a ridiculous. What, what was best. her name again? <laughs> <laughs> Sammy. Her name is Sammy. She goes yeah. by Sammy. You there won't you find go. her anywhere on our website? That's right. Uh, no, her name is her name is Natalie. She's excellent, I and, and I will say that that. I do think the customer service experience starts with when you enter the firm, how you answer the phone, what your contract process looks like, how are your releases done? How held do families feel? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I will be the first one to admit we're a small company. Mm -hmm. When my sort of CFO, COO said, we need two intake people. I looked at him like, yeah. are there referrals that are coming in under the transom that I'm not aware of like what are you, crazy and and having a bigger team approach yeah. having the right people in those positions really kicks off case as well so that's made a huge difference yeah. um, because I know that the details are being handled yeah um, and there's and we have a ways to go I will say I, I am very this is one area I'm very critical on in terms I'm critical in general of myself so unfortunately <laughs> by as most as my company, team members get it. But um, but this area, partially because of what I know we experienced as parents, you couldn't get calls back. Right. You'd put money down. You had no idea where it went. And, and some of it is, yes, mm-hmm. HIPAA. But I think that's also a, I, I sometimes think we hide behind that in, in our industry. Oh, I don't mm-hmm. know if I have a release. I'm like, well, you can find that out pretty quickly. And there's ways mm-hmm. to manage that process in the beginning. So um, I'm very into customer service and, and I think yeah. a lot of it is over communicating and being transparent when there is an issue. That's I always right. say I'd mm-hmm. rather us go forward and say, we made a mistake here, here's how we plan to rectify it, can, what else can we do than trying to hide behind, you know, the yeah. dog ate my homework or this happened, because my experience is families calm down, you know, some families get angry right. and that's, mm-hmm. the, you
0: mm-hmm. know, the
2: pain of working in this mm-hmm. business that we yeah. have to endure. Um, but other times I would say the vast majority of families are really kind and understanding. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
0: absolutely. You know, you and I both also have other family members in recovery. What, what would you, for our audience listening, listening, um, wanting a family member to go into recovery, what's the one piece of advice you want them to take away from today? Just someone (sighs) seeking, like, what do I do with my brother, my sister, my husband, my wife?
2: I'm going to give a very cheesy one, which was my philosophy. And my brother passed away. I'm, I'm so sorry about right. your sister, Likewise. by the way. Um, my brother passed away in 2018. I'm going to say never give up. I yeah. mean, I, for me, that's the philosophy I lived by, and um, and to this day, even having you know the worst thing imaginable happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I we actually just created as a family a memorial video about him, which I've been watching over the summer. I just Aww. got finished. And um, and you remember what a wonderful human he was. Part of the story is around his addiction and his recovery, which he was in recovery four and a half years when he died. Um, but part of it is just about who he was. And I, and I say never give up because even though the worst thing happened to our family to this day, I'm very proud of the fact that we all stood by him. Yes. You know, even mm-hmm. as we suspected this last relapse, we said, we love you and if you need something, we are here. We will send you back to treatment. And I'm very glad those were the last words he heard, and that it, it wasn't not to malign families that you know lots of things can happen, and yeah. something somebody passed away yeah. unexpectedly. But for me, it's sort of this. I always believed um, that he could get better, and yeah. I still believe that. Or I wouldn't, you know, I believe anybody can get better. And some families sort of roll their eyes, and yeah. I say, I know. It's like if I didn't believe that, though, I don't really think I should be running this company, honestly, because right. it, yeah. it would just be it yeah. wouldn't be fulfilling.
0: So I share that with you so much. And it's amazing. Sometimes we'll get a new referral and that we'll read the case notes on it. And I'm like, absolutely, we can help this. And my team is looking at me going, Are you kidding? Yeah. Do you really want this? And I'm like, absolutely, yes. We can do this. this. Yeah. We can do it. And you know what? We do it. We do. It's not giving up. Yeah. It's time. It's commitment. It's passion. One of our podcast
1: guests called it chronic hope. Remember that? Chronic hope. Chronic (laughs) hope.
0: Chronic hope. It's true. I like. I do too. I like that phrase, chronic hope. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Arden, you do a lot of you help a lot of families with eating disorders too. So, can you maybe tell us a little bit about the challenges in working with eating disorder patients and families?
2: Sure. And I'm going to own that I'm not a clinician, so yeah. I I always have yeah, like okay. to say it. I feel like <laughs> I always have to have the qualifier. You know, my my layman's interpretation of the difference between eating disorders. There's a lot of similarities with other behavioral health diagnosis. I would say on a practical level, what's challenging is so many of our eating disorder clients are very f- high functioning. I'm thinking particularly of an- clients with anorexia and even bulimia. They're folks who are in great high schools. They're going to great colleges. So by all counts in mm-hmm. our world that, where you can never be too rich or too thin, yep. they look like they're accomplishing all these wonderful things mm-hmm. and families I think particularly high net worth families are sometimes very reluctant to pull them off the track um, that they're already on where they're looking successful. The other, the other piece I would say is I personally, again, and this is my own view, like I do think avoiding people, places and things with addiction, I don't think it's easy, but I think it's possible. You can't avoid eating. And so it's a really, it's a whole psychological mind shift that has to happen. And I think it's a very challenging one. Um, So I I just think there's more nuances to the way the care is delivered. Uh, I think it's harder for families to tackle. I also think Mm -hmm. there can be, like any behavioral health issue, a a predisposition in a family system. But you can also often have a food philosophy within a family. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a daughter with an eating disorder and a mom who's had a really restrictive diet, maybe she's not full-blown anorexia. But you suddenly have a system that is maybe not even recognizing how much they're condoning these poor patterns of eating behavior. So uh, I I do think it's a very, and I think it's a, you know, it's, we know it has the highest mortality rate of any behavioral health issue. I think it's really insidious. I think families don't take it seriously until, you know, it's not always, but many families don't realize how serious it is until you're in a really dire situation. Completely Mm -hmm.
0: agree. Arden, we have two more questions before we run out of time. Yeah, so I, know. I want to ask time. a quick question about companion services, and then I know you They're... wanted to hear a story, but, I do. Uh, but tell us about your companion services because I think that they are so important in the process as well.
2: Sure. Um, it, you know, they became really, uh, we've always done companion work for, I think we're 10 years old this July, actually. It's our Congrats. anniversary. Aww. So thank you. Yeah, we're very excited. Um, so I think, I, I think, we started maybe a year into the business. I feel like they've been popular, but there's been a surge in the last couple of years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we see them as a bridge to folks going into treatment. If there's a waiting list for a bed, it could be something simple like a transport. And then we see them for some folks, and obviously they're expensive services. We've It's one of the areas that we've really increased our pricing. I'll be very candid because we know what it takes to offer a high level of service to have companions who feel like they're supported. You know, we have a full-time companion coordinator who supervises the supervisors of the companions. It's just a whole, there's an infrastructure behind it, (laughs) I think, to do it well. Um, But I think during COVID we saw a high increase because many people were thinking about it as an alternative to long-term residential stays for fear of the virus. Um, And -hmm. I think there are families who also just have lifestyles that are different. You know, they're traveling to multiple homes. They're not going to necessarily yep. stay in a facility over the long term right. um, so what we've learned is really good communication with the family with the companion having clinical oversight over the services really being very clear about what we can and can't tolerate in terms of behaviors on the front end i like to see rotations it's not always possible but mm-hmm. i really believe that companions do better work when they have a, a scheduled break I agree. Um, And then i I would just say you know really you know i I think being careful as to which providers you work with so if they're coming in with a therapist and psychiatrist very early on establishing a close relationship because they're very high risk cases and we don't want to be out there just delivering services in a vacuum we want to be in touch with their therapist psychiatrist if they need one we'll vet one on their behalf
0: absolutely i want to give a quick shout out to a companion that actually texted me right before uh the show started and he said you have Arden O'Connor today. How do I listen? And it's Sean, Sean Dugan down in New York. So, so Sean, <laughs> hello. Hi, <laughs> Sean. Thank <laughs> you. For... <laughs>
1: okay, so real Thank quick. Thank you tell us... for
2: wanting to listen.
0: Yeah. Oh, tell no, us that's a great.
1: success story, something that uh, you can leave the audience with.
2: Well, this is actually kind of timely. So we, one of our first cases, it was years ago, was a young man who came out of a treatment center on the East Coast. and We offered companion services with a schedule of companions. I was heavily involved (laughs) in dictating (laughs) the terms for a long time. Um, and, And I'll be honest, the case went well for a period of time. It had some bumps in the road. It wasn't totally clear when he left our services that it was going to be, you know, this trajectory that just went up. But I'm really happy to report he's sober and he doesn't work for our company, but he does. He works in the field. So yeah. oh, um, I it was it. one of those, you know, he got in many years later. His father um, came back to our company for separate services for another family member. Um, but I love those stories where you see somebody who had sure. outlined goals and his started to get that part-time job, started to go back to school and started to really build a life. And his is a particularly great trajectory. So, yeah, that's
1: amazing. That happens a lot, right? I mean, in this industry, people who have had success, they just want to pay it forward and they
0: get into the industry
1: themselves. Very common, right? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I am so thankful that you you were able to do this today. Hmm. And I know how incredibly busy you are. And again, you guys are one of our favorite services out there, and I know you're so well respected, and thank you for what you do every single day. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you. you so
2: much. It was great to be thank on you. with both of you and have a wonderful rest of your day.
0: Thank you. Take now, good care. Th- if they oh, want to yeah. reach hey.
2: you, if they want to oh, reach yeah.
1: you, how do they reach you, Arden?
2: Sure. So our website is www.oconnorpg.com and our okay. intake line is six one seven.
0: I love it. <laughs> I you know had, he, he had said. to say hello. <laughs>
2: he did. He said I I will be acknowledged. <laughs> 617 six one seven nine one zero
0: three nine four zero. I always forget our phone Wait, number. I do,
2: too. I don't <laughs> know why that is.
0: I know.
1: And so if they want to reach you, Dr. Flowers, how do they reach you?
0: I always say because I can't remember the phone number. I'm like jflowershealth.com. <laughs> That's a very
1: – much easier way to do it.
0: Exactly. Well, thank
1: you, everyone, for spending time with us. Thank you again, Arden.
0: Yeah, You're we spectacular.
1: And... I love your passion and your excitement, and you're so beautiful.
0: I want to get up oh, there and see you very soon.
1: Yes, yeah. yes. And I want to remind everyone watching or listening to us that you can find us on – bunch of different podcast platforms. Also, YouTube. So YouTube, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. Please share this episode on social media with someone or or like it, subscribe,
0: help us out. Absolutely. And we want to remind you that a clear diagnosis is also the key to the most effective treatment possible. Indeed. Good to see you, Arden. Bye,
2: Arden. Thank you so much. (laughs) Have a great week. Please join us every week for a new episode of Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers. Dr. Flowers and his most admired mentors, respected colleagues, and VIP guests For more information about Jay Flowers Health Institute and its concierge services, go to jflowershealth.com or
0: dial 713-783-6655 and be sure to mention this podcast.